0: We're going to continue in our series of looking through the book of Isaiah at some famous Christmas passages. So I ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9 right now. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 7 here in a little bit. Isaiah chapter 9, continuing our series, God with Us. As you're turning there, and as has already been mentioned earlier, this most certainly has been a dark week, a week of much despair. In our nation, the deep darkness and desperation of our sinful world is an ever-present reality, but sometimes certain events seem to showcase man's depravity even more than others. So this week, our nation is rightly in shock over the massacre that took place in Newtown, Connecticut. Particularly upsetting is the fact that so many lives were taken and that so many of those lives were young children. We're stunned, we're baffled, and angry, and our society will rightly unite in recognition that such an act is pure evil. I'm afraid, however, that our moral outrage will only last a moment. Pretty soon, if not already, that united indignation toward evil will dissolve into political posturing and attempts to place the blame for the tragedy in any place other than where it should be placed. How our nation feels right now will soon fade with time. Like when your eyes adjust to the darkness and you walk into a dark room and your eyes adjust to the darkness over time, so too our society will simply adjust, we'll start to forget, only to be shocked and angered the next time a shooting occurs, or the next time there's some senseless tragedy, or the next time that there's an exhibition of depravity that demands the national spotlight. What happened this week was just the product of a deeply dark, deeply sinful world that we live in, that we are part of. We live in a culture that loves the darkness, yet is wrought to the core when the fruit of that darkness buds. The collective eyes of our culture, after all, have long since adjusted to the darkness that we live in. We've adjusted to the fact that the equivalent of of 100 new town massacres happens each day across our nation legally and we mask the darkness by calling it a right we've long been desensitized to the darkness and after a week like this many are left feeling hopeless and searching for answers and there is hope and there is an answer and that's what Isaiah 9 is all about The hope is the light that Isaiah says has come, and the light is Christ, and the light dawned at Christmas, and the light cannot be stopped. We'll read the passage here in a second, but let me give you another couple of passages. John 1, 4 says, in him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But the message of the light of Christ is not the Christmas message most of the world wants to hear, not at all. It's not the answer the world wants to a tragedy like we saw this week. John 1.9 says that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. The message of the light of Christ exposes us to the fact that darkness isn't out there in the world in some sicko who shoots children but that darkness is here. In the human heart, and therefore, men hate the light. As we read just a few weeks ago, John 3 19, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Christmas, therefore, is a time of great conflict. Darkness hates light and is at war with light. And Christmas is all about a grand spiritual conflict. Our Christmas cards love the iconic image of the three wise men coming to the very sterile looking, whether it be the stable or wherever it is they're coming and they're bringing the gifts to the Christ child. How easily we forget the rest of that story. Because the rest of that story says that King Herod, who hated the light, proceeded to carry out a massacre of young children in his attempt to snuff out the light. The slaughter of our day is just a continuation of the hostilities of war that began in a garden thousands of years ago. But as John says, the darkness has not overcome the light. That light has come. And so I want Isaiah to turn on the light switch for us this morning. So please stand, if you would, as we read Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. This is the Word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning is that you would take this magnificent passage of Scripture and use it like a flashlight shine it into our darkness shine it into our lives so that we might see the glory of this child this child of light that we all say that we're celebrating at this time of the year so father may we see the light more fully and therefore rejoice more fully We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Be seated, please. (coughs) This is an amazing passage of scripture, and one sermon can't do it justice. I will get through it the best I can today. Let me give you a little bit of a recap here because basically, we've been walking through Isaiah here, and we were in chapter 6, and then we were in chapter 7. We're skipping over chapter 8, really, and we're going to chapter 9. But I'll give a little bit of information here to sort of bridge that gap. That Israel is a divided kingdom right now. This is around 733 B.C. when this specific prophecy in chapter 9 is being mentioned. There's the northern ten tribes called Israel, or also sometimes called Samaria or Ephraim. And then there's the southern two tribes, which are Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And those are called Judah. Now, Uzziah, who had been king over Judah, had died. We saw that back in chapter 6. And as a result of his death, or really his death, coincided with a marked spiritual decline in the people of Judah. Now, Israel had already been in decline for many years. There were no good kings over the people of Israel. Now, also in the area, there as we mentioned before, there was this new power on the scene named Assyria. And led by a guy, a guy named Tiglath-Pileser. And they were beginning to take over all the other nations of the region. They were, they were ravaging the region. And so Israel, the northern tribes, and Syria, another nation just north of Israel, had, had formed a coalition against Judah. They wanted to take over Judah to, to strengthen themselves against the oncoming onslaught of the Assyrians. So Ahaz and the people of Judah were worried about that, as we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 7. And God gave Isaiah a prophecy, the Emmanuel prophecy, that he was with them, God with us. And we saw in that prophecy that it had a fuller fulfillment in Jesus, who would be God with us in a much greater and more significant sense, and he would deliver us from a much greater foe. But instead of having faith in the God who was with them, Ahaz and the people of Judah didn't have any faith, and thus This prophecy also meant that judgment would come upon them as well. And so the big picture is this, that this is a time of great darkness for the people of Israel and Judah. For all of God's people, this is a time of great darkness. And it's more than just political darkness. It's spiritual darkness. And so with that in mind, we get to chapters 8 and 9 where the Emmanuel prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled now, at least the immediate fulfillment of it. Assyria has already, by this time, wiped out the nation of Syria and now had invaded Israel and the northern tribes had already experienced the brunt of the Assyrian onslaught. Two of those northern tribes were the tribe of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so already... The, 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 the Assyrians are pushing in on God's people. This is a time of great darkness. But why was it such a time of great darkness? Because the people had forsaken their God. It was a time of spiritual darkness. Matter of fact, to help us understand why chapter 9 is such good news, let us see the bad news of chapter 8. So let's back up a little bit. Go to chapter, verse nineteen of chapter eight, and you'll see the condition of the people of Israel at this time. Okay, so this is referring to talking about how the people are refusing to seek after God, and this is this is God speaking to Isaiah verse nineteen. And when they say to you, "Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter," should not a people inquire of their God? Should not they inquire of, of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Okay, so they have no light. Verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly despaired and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. I want to pause right there. It's dark. They have refused to seek after God. They're seeking after other means of dealing with their circumstances. They're, they're going after uh, necromancers and spiritists and mediums. They want to speak to the dead. They're, they're worshiping false gods. Yet, when the darkness begins to close in on them, in verse 21, it says they're enraged and they speak contemptuously against their king and against their God. Isn't that interesting? People refuse to seek God. People refuse to honor God. They go after everything else. And then tragedy strikes, and who are they mad at? God. It always blows me away, because I'll get on these different websites sometimes during a tragedy, after a tragedy like what happened in Newton, and begin to look at the comments on these news pages, and you see people commenting. It's amazing to see people who say they're atheists so mad at God that they don't believe in. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why are you mad at someone you don't even believe exists? But they are. They'll say, oh, God is horrible. How could God allow this to happen? You Christians say you believe in God. Well, your God is horrible. Well, if you don't believe in him, then why do you feel that way? You think I see our reaction during tragedy, it, it betrays what we really believe. It betrays what we say we believe. Every man knows there's a God. It's foolish for people who say they don't believe in God to then get mad at him. Be like me getting mad at the tooth fairy because there's not money under my pillow every day. Uh Uh-oh, hope I didn't blow up for anybody in here. It's silly, but that's what's happening in Israel. The people of God hate God. They've turned from God. They've gone after false gods. And then darkness closes in and they're mad at God. They're turning their face and cursing God. God verse 22 and when they look to the earth but behold despair and darkness the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness so we need to have that understanding there's gloom despair darkness anguish they've been thrust into darkness so the deliverance that Israel needs is a spiritual deliverance. It's the type of deliverance that Isaiah speaks about when it speaks about Christ Jesus being the light. So chapter 8 ends with spiritual gloom. But the very first word of chapter 9 is the word, but. There's this spiritual gloom, but. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now a quick word here. You'll see this all throughout this prophetic word today where Isaiah goes back and forth between using past tense and future tense. And what biblical scholars call it is prophetic perfect is the tense that prophets often use where they will speak of something In the future as if it took place in the past. What it is, it's a literary device really. It's a common prophetic way of speaking that reinforces the fact that with God, what I'm saying is as good as done. It's a way of saying that God exists outside of time. He's already secured what I'm prophesying right now. So God is saying through Isaiah that despite the darkness and the despair, there is coming a time when there will no longer be any gloom. And that's the hope of Christmas. That's our message of Christmas. Deliverance has come. The light of Christ has dawned. And he is the only hope for our dark and gloomy world. Christ is the great joy-producing light who has come. Verse 2 of Isaiah 9. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them The light has shown all throughout the New Testament. When it speaks about the fulfillment of this prophecy, of the light coming into the world, it speaks of the person of Jesus Christ. This isn't just some spiritual revival. This is Christ himself who is dawning and who is coming upon people who are living in deep darkness. The darkness of sin and the deserved judgment has settled upon all men. Yet God in his glorious grace and mercy not based upon anything good in man, was sending light. A great light. Not a faint light, but a great light. And notice at the end of verse 2, it wasn't a light that the people found or a light that the people produced. It was shown on them. They walked and dwelt willingly in the darkness of sin, but God has shown light upon them in grace. And where there is light, there is also great joy. And so verse 3 says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest. And they are glad as when they divide the spoil. With light comes joy. Parents, you know this. You've got a child who's scared of the dark. They're scared of the dark. And so you put a nightlight in the room and turn on that nightlight. And all of a sudden, everything's better now. And with light comes peace and joy, and rest. And so with light piercing into the darkness comes a multiplication and increasing of joy. And When it says here that you have multiplied the nation, God is speaking. We know that he's specifically targeting here in these words, because of verse 1, the region of Nephthali and Zebulun. Those are two tribes that have already been wiped off the face of the planet by this point as Assyria is coming into the into Israel. And so Isaiah goes out of his way to speak to two tribes that have been demolished and says, You have multiplied the nation. God is speaking to a people who have been wiped out, saying that He would preserve a remnant. He will multiply the nation. He will preserve a people faithful to Himself, and they would receive abundant joy when the light shines upon them. What is this joy like? It's like the joy of a people at harvest time who recognize and receive God's bountiful provision. It's like the joy of a people after a great military victory who recognize and revel in God's powerful protection. Just as with the light, again, God is making all this happen. You have multiplied. Isaiah is speaking to God, you have increased. So great light and increased joy from God. So what is this light? Well, as I've already mentioned, it's not a what is this light, but who is this light? The great joy producing light is Christ. Christ Jesus, the Christ child that we are celebrating this Christmas, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he and his name shall be called I'm going to pause right there because I want to focus on the name in a second. For unto us a child is born. Unlike the Emmanuel prophecy, this one can't have two fulfillments. The Emmanuel prophecy had an immediate fulfillment with with Isaiah's child and then a fuller, more significant fulfillment in Christ. But this one, only one person could ever be born who could take on what's being described in this passage. Unto us a child is born. Jesus would come and be born of a woman, a virgin, 100% man. He is a child. He was a child who was born. But it goes on to say unto us a son is given. Jesus, though he was in the flesh, was not the product of the flesh of men. He was given. He was given by God the Father. So he is 100% man, yet he is 100% God he is the God man as one preacher put it and I love this he is the infinite infant older than his mother and as old as his father he is a son given to us to us to mankind to humanity given to be the son of man so that men could become sons of God Indeed, this is no ordinary child. This child who is the light is also a sovereign ruler. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And it's on his shoulders He reigns. The reason he could break the yoke on our shoulders in verse 4, talks about a yoke being on our shoulders, the reason he could break the yoke on our shoulders is because he rules. He is the God-man who rules the universe now that's pretty intense as we meditate and think about that but Isaiah wants to take us deeper he says in verse 6 that his name shall be called we know that in the scriptures especially the Old Testament when a name is mentioned that name is supposed to represent the character or the attributes of the person so as Isaiah is saying here his name shall be called He wants us to understand more of the greatness of the character of this child. So I'm going to give you, basically Isaiah is saying, I'm going to give you some attributes that are all wrapped up in his name. And Isaiah gives us a fourfold name to help us more fully see who this light really is. And which will increase our joy. I was thinking of a way to illustrate this to the kids this morning as we think about this name. Because it's just, it's like... He gives us this fourfold name, and he says one thing, and then he says another, and another. And it's just sort of, the joy is just increasing as you consider each one of these things. It should be, at least, as we consider each one of these things of who this Christ child is, who this child of light is. And it reminded me, when I was a kid sometimes, and I would open a gift. Do you ever have this happen, where you, you begin to open the gift, and you begin to get a peek of what it is? And then you open it up a little bit more. Oh. And then you open it a little bit more and you go, oh! You get more excited as you peel back one more layer after another. Now this is just a box. Don't get excited, all right? It's just a prop. But you begin to get excited as you peel one layer back and then another layer back, and you begin to see. I remember I think it was in fourth or fifth grade when I got the, the G.I. Joe jet. And you first you peel back and you see the label G.I. Joe, and you're going, oh yeah. And then you see, oh, it's a plane. Which plane is it? Oh! Yes, it's the tomahawk, whatever. Oh, oh, and it comes with an action figure. Oh! So that's that's what we should see here. Isaiah said, let me tell you about this child. And he begins to, little by little, reveal the name of this child of light. So that was all an introduction. (laughs) Let me get to our points now. First, I want you to see that our joy will increase as we more fully behold the greatness of the light. Our joy will increase as we more fully behold the greatness of the light. And this child of light is these four things and so much more. And so I've sort of just reworded these a little bit to Kind of help us, I think, dive into what these different titles mean. First of all, this child of light is our ever-wise guide. Wonderful counselor. The word counselor here in the Hebrew literally means one who has the wisdom to lead others. In the villages and in the towns, there would be men who were counselors. Who had the wisdom to lead the other men, to lead the families within Those villages and those towns. And so this word counselor means that Jesus is our guide. He's the only one who has the wisdom to lead his people out of the darkness. He is the embodiment of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1 says that to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul goes on to say that Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption every solution we need for life is found in jesus christ christ is the only guide to deliver us out of this dark world he is the one who 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 rescues us from this world for he is our righteousness righteousness He is the one to guide us as we continue to walk through this world for he is our sanctification. He is the one that secures our safe passage through this dark world for he is our redemption. Christ is the wonderful counselor, our ever wise guide. And he guides us through his word. His word is our wise counsel. Let me just say a word. This is why... I believe in biblical counseling. Why do we believe biblical counseling is the way to go when people are struggling with the issues of life? Because Christ is a wonderful counselor. That's why. He is our ever-wise guide. He is our counselor. Therefore, his word becomes our counsel. And we counsel one another with this word. And we believe in that. We believe that Christ is sufficient. We believe his word is sufficient. To deal with whatever it is we're going through. And believe me, there are some really, really, really dark things that people are going through even in the church. And Christ's word is sufficient for that. We believe that Christ is our ever wise guide. So, just as that joy increased, as when I was in fourth grade and I began to tear back that paper, so too I want us to see that our joy will increase more fully as we behold the greatness of this light, who is our ever wise guide, but who also is our, number two on your notes, divine champion. Christ is our divine champion. Isaiah peels back the wrapping even more and says that his name is. Mighty God. This had to be baffling to Isaiah's hearers and readers. How could a child be mighty God? But that's who he is. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And he is not an absent God. He is no impersonal or impotent God of deism. He is a mighty God. Now the word mighty here carries with it the hint of the heroic. What were David's closest men, his warriors, called? They were called David's what? Mighty men. So the word here, this mighty descriptor, is a word that refers to the heroic. So our God is a hero God. He is our divine champion. He is the God who is our warrior, our rescuer, our victor, our conqueror. Look back at what this child of light has accomplished back in verse 4 of this Isaiah passage. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He is our champion, our rescuer. He has broken the oppression. He is an oppression breaking, freedom securing hero. The yoke, the burden, the oppression is the oppression of sin. That's the darkness we're in. How do we know Isaiah's talking about spiritual oppression here? You might say, well, Steve, maybe he's just talking about political oppression. I'll tell you why we know he's talking about spiritual oppression. Because Israel and Judah would remain under political oppression for the rest of their days. And when this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Israel was under the control of the Romans. And when Christ died and rose again and went to heaven, Israel was under control of the Romans. And when the temple was sacked and destroyed in AD 70, it was sacked and destroyed by the Romans. Yet Christ had come and done all that was prophesied in this text. So the oppression that was broken was a greater oppression than political oppression. It was the oppression of sin. That's why our dark world feels so burdened, especially this weekend. We feel so burdened because of the oppression of sin. All the while we're trying to throw off the burden with man-made solutions when Christmas declares that a child has been born and this child is mighty God and he is the one who's come to be our victor and our deliverer. We must see our utter helplessness. To, to kind of continue the picture here, we are the damsel in distress. We've got to see that. We're weak. Verse 4 says, as on the day of Midian. You know what that's referring to, the day of Midian? Children, do any of you know the Bible story of when the Midianites in the book of Judges had oppressed the people of Israel? And there were hordes of Midianites all over Israel? I believe the army of the Midianites was at least a couple hundred thousand. Do you remember who God sent to deliver them at that time? Children? How about adults? Gideon. Gideon. So this reference here as on the day of Midian is looking back to the story of a guy named Gideon. Do you remember Gideon? He was a weak. He was the least of his clan, the least of his family, the least of his tribe. And God chose him. And then they they gathered together an army, and what did God do to the army? He whittled it down to 300 people. And then he sends them to battle against this horde of Midianites with weapons that consisted of pots of clay and torches and loud voices. Why? So that he could demonstrate that the true hero wasn't Gideon. The true hero is our mighty God. So he delivered the people of Israel and that's the same type of deliverance the Messiah brings. A deliverance that we can take no credit for. A deliverance where God gets all the credit. He's the hero in the story. He's our champion. That's why the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church not because we're so great but because we have Christ. Christ is with us. Emmanuel, and he is great. He is our champion. So Isaiah continues to tear back the wrapping for us here. Joy will increase as we more fully behold the greatness of the light, and we see that this Christ child is our ever wise guide, and he is our divine champion. But also, number three, he is our uncreated creator. Isaiah says his name is also. Everlasting Father. Now don't get tripped up here by the word Father. This is one of the few texts that a modalist will use sometimes as a proof text to say there's no distinction in the Godhead. But they would be wrong. In light of the full revelation of Scripture, that's a foolish statement to make. The word Father here is not referring to Jesus' position in the Godhead. Rather, it's referencing his sovereign eternality. It's father in the sense that he is the source of all things. It could be even translated father of eternity. This little phrase here could be translated father of eternity. Jesus is the uncreated creator. He is the source of all things. It's what John says in the very beginning of his gospel. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Without him there would be nothing. He is the uncreated creator. He is father of all. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. You know, we live in a universe where simple scientific observation of our universe has led scientists to conclude that it had to have had a beginning. You won't find a credible scientist today that who believes that the, that the universe didn't have a beginning. And scientists have also concluded quite obviously that it's impossible for something to come out of nothing. Yet the darkness of the human heart refuses to see the logical conclusion of these two scientifically verifiable truths. They speculate that it all began with the Big Bang, yet they can't explain the Big Banger. They refuse to acknowledge that there had to be an origin, there had to be something that created something out of nothing. And I think logic tells us it's foolish to think otherwise. If I'm standing in my home and I hear someone knock on the door and I hear a knock on the door, I automatically assume there is a person knocking. I don't observe the truth of the knock and the sound of the knock and go, "Well, that came from nowhere." Yet, while blind our universe, our world is, that we can scientifically verify the beginning of the universe, that the universe had a beginning. And verify, obviously, that something can't come from nothing and refuse to see the light because we love our darkness. Christmas tells us that Jesus is the one whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Christ, indeed, is the everlasting, eternal father, the source of all things, the Alpha and Omega. Our joy will increase as we more fully behold these things. He is our ever-wise guide, our divine champion, our uncreated creator. And finally, he is our ambassador of peace. Isaiah finishes his glorious fourfold description of the child's name by calling him the Prince of Peace. Now in ancient conflicts, the prince would often be sent as an envoy Or a representative of his father, the king. With the authority as an heir of the throne to secure a peace agreement. So this child of light functions in that sort of way. As an heir to the king of heaven. He has been sent to rebels. He has been sent to rebels like us to bring us terms of peace. But he is more than that. He himself is the one who would procure and secure the peace. Verse 5 says that every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Jesus came to bring an end to war, but primarily to a spiritual battle, and that is our warfare against the king of heaven. For according to Paul in Ephesians 2, 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. But not the peace that the world would understand. Christ's peace is quite different than that which the world imagines. Jesus himself would say in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So what sort of peace is this that Jesus brings? What sort of peace is it that the angels announce to the shepherds? Well... Isaiah takes a great portion of the rest of the book of Isaiah to describe that. And he really brings it home in verse, in chapter 53. Let me just read to you a few verses from Isaiah 53. Surely he, and this is this Christ child, this child of light. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the peace that we so desperately need and the peace our world needs... Isn't the peace that comes from gun control? Isn't the peace that comes from getting our political parties to get along and figure out how to fix our debt? The peace we need is peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot have peace on earth until we are at peace. ...with God. And that's the peace our dark world needs this Christmas. So, this child of light is our ever-wise guide... ...our divine champion, our uncreated creator... ...our ambassador of peace. And I think when we get the present totally unwrapped... ...I think what we discover is that the great light that our world so desperately needs... ...is the light of the gospel. The light the world needs this Christmas... ...is the light of Christ seen in the gospel. The gospel is the message of Christmas. The message of the good news. The good news is this, that Christ came. That he lived, he died and rose again... ...to bring sinners out of darkness and to God. Christ is our only hope. He's our only source of peace. He is the embodiment of true love. He is our only joy. We light these candles here... ...but these candles are all about the gospel... For all who call upon his name, who repent of their sins and turn to him. For those, those who do that, he becomes counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And through him, we become delivered. Delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Christ is not the light of Christmas if we don't have the gospel. He's just a cute baby in a manger. I think this passage clearly points to the gospel message of Jesus Christ is ultimately why Christ is the light. Way back in verse 1, it said that this light was coming into the land of Zebulun, in the land of Neptali, but in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. When you read it, you think, wait a second. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's not in Zebulun or in Iptali or near Galilee. Bethlehem's way down in Judah. So why is the light bursting forth there? Do you know where this passage is quoted in the New Testament? Isaiah 9-1 is quoted in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. Right after Jesus' baptism, and it says after he's baptized, he went to the land of Galilee and there began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He began to preach the gospel, and that's when the light burst forth onto the scene. Jesus is the light, But without the gospel message, there is no light. Christ who gave his life for sinners is the only hope for this dark world. Mankind will not feel its way out of this darkness. We will not educate our way out of the next Newtown tragedy. We will not legislate our way out of the next Newtown tragedy. We cannot rationalize our way out or moralize our way out. There is only one way out ...and that is to embrace the light. Come and put your hope in Christ, the light. The light of Christmas. This light has and will overcome the darkness. The lingering effects of darkness will continue to ravage this world... ...as it eagerly awaits the adoption of the sons of God. In that second advent, that coming of Christ, it will happen. And when it does, the final and fullest fulfillment of these words will take place... So let's finish what Isaiah says. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. O friend, for those who have found their peace with God. When Christ comes again... He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. The former things have passed away. There will be no more new towns from then on. For the darkness will finally be abolished, and we will live in the light. And what's our great assurance? Our great assurance is that God has promised this. And the very last thing Isaiah says in the passage we read today is the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank goodness it's not up to us to abolish the darkness of this world. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Darkness will not win. Light will overcome the darkness. Because God has said so. And that's what Christmas is all about. Let's bow our heads And let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we close this time, I just pray that, Lord, our focus and the intensity of our our emotion and everything else that comes with Christmas would be on Christ alone. It's so easy in this season when we talk about peace on earth and goodwill to men, To think that this holiday, this Christmas, is simply about being nice. Being nice so that, well, we can all just get along for a month. We talk about peace on earth at Christmas, but in reality, Father, there's warfare going on right now. Because men are at war with you. Because men love darkness rather than the light. And so we desperately need for your Spirit to move upon our nation and shed the light of Christ on the hearts of sinful men. This shooting that happened this week, as tragic as it is, Lord, we know will not change anything in our nation. Oh God, I pray for revival. Sometimes I feel so overwhelmed by the darkness The way our society is going and the way evil is so smiled upon and righteousness is so frowned upon. And tragedies like this happen. And how we all, our president and all of us, can get all upset and teary-eyed over this, yet 3,000 children a year are slaughtered in a more gruesome fashion in little clinics And it doesn't bother us one bit. That's some serious darkness, Father. That's some serious darkness we're in. And I get so overwhelmed by it that I wonder if there's any way out. But I read a passage like this, and I know the zeal, your zeal, Father, will make it happen. And so we pray for revival. Whether or not America ever revives and becomes a nation who is going to Go after you, or we're going to be like Israel. We're going to get wiped out. It doesn't matter because your truth will continue to proceed forth, and your people of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation will be brought to you. Your remnant will be brought to you. And we praise you for that. And we look forward to the day when darkness is finally vanquished. Because when light meets darkness, it's no contest. Father, your light always wins. We pray that you'd help us be emissaries of the gospel this Christmas with our families and our friends, that we might share the light of Christ. Father, I know we're going to have opportunities to talk to people, especially in light of this tragedy. There's going to be a lot of conversations at the workplaces. Help us, Lord, to be true ambassadors of Christ in the way we talk about this dark world. May we offer hope that's found in Christ to those who need it this Christmas. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.